founder of Kenji ROI, big Amazon agency. And I just saw on his Instagram, boom, he just sold it for a big payout. And so I was like, boom, awesome, dude. We had so many Amazon agency masterminds or in the co-working spaces and meetups in Bali through the, through the years. And so I always like, thank you for that, for kind of showing me um, some awesome tips and tricks when I was starting my, my agency uh, a few years ago uh, when we met in Bali and uh, I saw it on Instagram and I was like, dude, let's come on and I want to pick your brain about it. And I'm sure lots of other agency guys would be curious to, to hear about the process. So yeah, congrats, dude. Yeah, I'm excited, man. And uh, good to connect here again. We're not too far away, Bangkok and Bali, just kind of next door neighbors. But um, but yeah, I mean, the the process of selling the agency, something I've always wanted to do is sell a business. And uh, there's a few reasons why I did it, which we can get into in a little bit. But um, I'm just excited to have my first business sale under my belt and just have a little bit of freedom to do a bit of traveling and head off to Turkey with my girlfriend for a little while. And just have some time to just brainstorm the next business and not have the pressure of just you know always having yeah. to uh, to keep producing every week because it's uh, it's been like six years or so of, of hustling with this agency yep. and uh, this is the first like big break that I'm going to be able yeah. to take here. Yeah, dude, that's um, super super exciting. And so this episode will kind of be uh, geared towards just you know myself and other versions of myself um it's like other agency owners who have always been kind of um curious like what does the process look like how easy how hard is it to sell an agency can you even sell your agency like and so yeah get, give an overview for like um like wh what was the well maybe first of all what kind of um uh gave you the motivation to look into selling it and yeah what was the process like yeah i mean i always kind of had it in the back of my mind that i wanted to sell the agency at some point but uh, like you said agencies are not typically the businesses that people sell and i didn't really know if it was a sellable type of business until one of my mentors um, in a mastermind that i was taking ended up selling his agency and i kind of got to see the process of how he was able to sell it. Uh, and uh, that is kind of what set the spark in motion. I always knew I wanted to sell. I knew that the agency was not like my passion business that I'm just going to be super excited to grow until I'm into my 60s. So I knew it was going to happen yeah. at some point. I just didn't really know when. And at some point, about a year ago, um, I hit this kind of wall where at that point, we were growing really fast. I think we had just had our first 100K a month. And things were getting a little bit crazy. And that's mm -hmm. kind of the point where once I crossed that 100K month point, I just realized that I was pushing really hard to cross that point. And I didn't have that same motivation to go hit the next marker, whatever, 200K, 250K, yeah. whatever that next marker was. I just didn't want to continue growing the business. It's kind of like that yeah. goal once it was achieved, it just the next goal didn't seem so appealing. So yeah. um, after that point, I... I kind of made the decision, like, I'm definitely not going to continue to grow it bigger. So I either keep it at this point or I'm going to sell it. And then the actual sales process was really interesting. Now, it's this is not a normal sales process. So like selling agencies is a little bit less common than 
selling e-commerce businesses and selling SaaS companies that get crazy multiples and things. And full disclosure here, I'm not rich enough to retire. You know what I mean? Like agencies don't get the same multiples as e-com and SaaS do for sure. But um, I got enough to to spend some time building my next business and, you know, go travel and do some some stuff, maybe a bit of investments and stuff like that. Um, but first, I just needed to feel comfortable. It's like, well, can I actually sell this agency? There's a lot of it that was tied up into me and my personal brand and everything like that. Yeah. And I went back and forth with this for months. For months, it's like, I want to sell it, but like, I don't know if I can do it. And I just kind of blocked myself. But the process of selling it went incredibly smoothly. I literally one night was just like really fed up. It's like, I just want to sell this thing. Screw it. I'm going to send some DMs to people I know in my network. And that night, I literally sent two Facebook DMs out to other people who I thought might want to buy my agency. These are people who owned other companies in the Amazon space because my agency is uh, in the Amazon e-commerce space. And it ended up being one of those mm -hmm. two DMs that was the buyer of my agency. It was that. It was from those first two DMs that I sent. And I did other, two, other things too. Like I ended up after that finding a uh, broker who you know made some introductions to other agencies and things like that. But ultimately, the buyer ended up being one of those first two DMs that I sent. So I'm kind of kicking myself for not just doing that earlier and just this mental block of like, oh, this yeah. is going to be such a hard thing to yeah, figure out. Um, and um, yeah, it, it was it was not as challenging as I thought it was going to be. I'll, I'll say that. Hmm. Interesting. And so so the multiples aren't as good like um, for e-commerce, like FBA. They say it's like uh, like a thirty to forty monthly profit, or like a two to two to two to four, right? Three to four x like yearly profit. With agency, is it you're saying it's less than that? Yeah, it's quite a bit less than that. Like you're going to get a, a much like smaller, yeah, like somewhere around a two x yearly profit. Um, but I actually didn't value my agency based on that. I kind of looked at it based off of the value of the marketing assets. And the you know the brand and those kind of things because you can pretty easily calculate okay we're getting this many warm leads per day and the value of that is x based on if you had to pay ads for it then that's the value of that and i actually valued it based on that i realized i could get a little bit better of multiple doing that than just going the traditional way of doing that and that's kind of one insight that i learned through selling this yeah. business is that there's no clear cut this is how you sell the business and this is exactly what it's worth there's so much variance in that. I mean, for Frick's sake, like the, um, what was that deal that just went through for Adobe? It was, um, uh, what's, uh, what's the name of that company? Figma. They paid $20 billion for Figma and they had like 400,000, um, 400,000 a Figma? month revenue or something like that. Yeah. Figma, they paid 20 billion for a company that's making 400,000 a month oh. in, in revenue. So there's so much variance in what a business is worth, not only to another company, but to a maybe a specific company, your business is worth a lot more. And for me, that ended up being my buyer was someone who this specific company is specifically interesting to them. And so, you know, other random dudes who just are 60 and they want a, a side business that can run itself, they're not going to buy my agency. They have no interest. It's someone who specifically has a market interest in uh, a company specific to mine. Right, but someone 
someone maybe who's in the Amazon slash e-commerce game, they're buying your assets. So your traffic flow, your maybe existing customer lists, oh, maybe they have a product that, you know, they know the value of that email list now. I remember you telling me that you were getting a lot, if not most of your um, warm leads from like organic Google search. Yeah. Yeah. SEO on Google specifically was our main driver that really made us take off. So was that the still the case getting like most or a lot of your leads from Google organic? Yeah. That's what really allowed us to scale. Like in the very beginning, we yeah. didn't get much from organic. I put a few blog posts up there and just kind of let them sit for, for a long time. It was mostly Facebook organic that we we're getting in the beginning, but then once we really started going heavy with SEO, that's what really allowed us to scale because SEO is such a good stackable marketing strategy. So the more good blog posts we got up there, the more consistent traffic would come in and it would grow, right? Blog posts that I wrote two or three years ago are still getting really good traffic, some of them. Um, unlike just Facebook organic marketing, where the second you stop posting is the second you stop getting any traffic at all. So mm -hmm. I think SEO was really key in our growth. Um, there was even like a six month or more period where we didn't put out any blog posts and the traffic on Google analytics did not drop at all from Google right. SEO, like zero drop. It was just steady for six months of not doing anything. So, um, I mean, I don't know any other traffic sources that are like that. Yes, it is amazing. And it's finally, uh, this past six months become a, a traffic source for us. Um, like a big chunk of our leads and new clients are now from Google organic search. So it's like, heck yeah. Um, and so I was going to ask you, so I know you've had your podcast. So was the podcast, cause I know like for every podcast, we even did a couple, you had your your blog writer um, format the podcast into a blog post. Would you say the podcast was a big component of that Google organic uh, lead source? Uh, the podcast was a big component of that, but it played a slightly different role, I think. So it's one, it's very hard to measure how much traffic actually comes from the podcast because just podcasting analytics are pretty terrible in general. But I do know that it helped a lot of the leads become warmer. So a lot of the people that would fill out our quote request form, that's how we got clients. Like people on our website would fill out a quote request and just a little bit of details about what they need. And then they'd be prompted to book a call. And in the emails and when we're on sales calls with a lot of these people, they would mention they've been listening to the podcast for a while. And those people are always easier to close. They're super, super warm leads. Um, and then also, like you said, we were putting the embedded podcast onto a blog version on the website. And that's where we're driving all of our traffic to from our email list, social media, whenever a new podcast goes up, we don't drive them to Spotify or whatever. We drive them to the embedded podcast on our blog so that they're going to our website. And then a lot of those people end up like clicking off to some other blog posts, or they're at least yeah. coming back onto our website. They're getting repixeled, all of these things. 
right? Um, not that we really run any ads, like very basic retargeting ads, but that was uh, that was key, I think, to driving people back to our website. Just an excuse to to send them a link to our website uh, on a repeated basis. Yeah, right, and that that increases the uh, domain authority or health of your website because you're getting visitors that are hanging out there because it likes that. That is a, I'm going to implement that right away. Um, yeah, that's, that's great. Um, and then was, um, did you get much, were you doing much YouTube stuff and getting traffic from that? YouTube, we weren't doing a whole lot of, um, I think by the time I sold the business, we had like 1800 subscribers or something like that. And our top video had like 20,000 views, um, you know, and most of them had under a thousand. So that was more of an afterthought. Like we did upload video versions of our podcast there because it was easy. Um, but you know, most of them have like a hundred views, 200 views kind of thing. Um, occasionally we'd put up some other content there, but SEO was our biggest focus, but looking forward, honestly, if I were to build the same business now, I might actually take more of that focus and put it on YouTube because I see YouTube as kind of the modern version of SEO operates in a very similar way to Google SEO in terms of your old videos are probably going to continue to get views if they're good videos, they kind of stack and you just gain more momentum. And YouTube is a platform that I think more and more attention is moving to. And it seems to me like more attention is moving away from blog posts and towards platforms like YouTube and, and video related content. So I really see YouTube as the modern version of SEO. Yeah, makes sense. Okay, great. So maybe more focus on YouTube. What other, um, looking back, maybe um, tips and pro uh, tricks would you give to, you know, another a past version of yourself uh, who's uh, building their agency maybe with the, the, an exit in mind in the future? Yeah, I think maybe one of the biggest things I'll tell my past self would be just learn the art of cash flow management and sustainable growth. Because I ran into that problem over and over at different points of just growing the team too aggressively or just not managing cash flow carefully enough. And it's difficult to strike the balance between really growing the agency when you do get that influx of new clients and everything like that and growing and hiring new team members and then also overhiring or overspending on you know new marketing initiatives or new systems to help with things and everything. It's a, it's a difficult thing. And I didn't really learn the ins and outs of business cash flow until I was really forced, until there was a few cash flow crises where, you know, my bank flow, uh, cash flow management, like just checking bank accounts and making very basic spreadsheets just wasn't really doing the trick anymore. So um, that becomes more and more important the more money is coming in and going out of your business, of course, right? Obviously, you need to ensure that there's more money coming in than is going out and, um, you know, ensure that your growth is done in a sustainable way so you don't mm -hmm. blow things up. Mm -hmm. What, um, were there any like, uh, apps or, or systems or QuickBooks or something that you started using that, um, was like a, a, a breakthrough on that front? 
Uh, for the cash flow management, I think the biggest breakthrough was um, it was part of one of the agency mentorship masterminds that I was part of. It was like a year-long mastermind for agency owners doing more than 50K a month. And there was some guest that came on there who um, was just, he managed a lot of different uh, companies' books and everything like that. And he had this budget sheet. It was a it was a spreadsheet that just went through basically your chart of accounts like you would have in QuickBooks, but he had it worked out in terms of percentages of like, you know, these types of businesses typically spend this percentage on, um, you know, team and this percentage on ads and this percentage on this and everything like that. And that spreadsheet is a bit of a beast to get your heads around, but just knowing those rough percentages of what you should be spending on team, uh, what you should be spending on this, what you should be spending on this was super, super useful uh, because I'd never really even thought of that before. And I realized that a few of them were a little bit out of whack. Like, you know, we were spending too much on production team at one point and we were underspending on marketing or as some examples. And so you can kind of use that information just to make better business decisions other than just looking at your top line and your bottom line and then just like, okay, where can we cut? It's like, no, you should, you should know where the averages are for a type of businesses like this. Mm -hmm. So it's like, okay, so the team is a little bit unhealthy right now as far as the money we're spending on the team or, you know, we're spending too much on advertising. That was probably the biggest breakthrough for me in just learning how to manage the cash flow. Yeah. Yeah, that's a huge thing. Um, and so, uh, okay, if we have any comments here. All right, what other, um, were there any kind of uh, real big oh, did we uh, lose Riley here? Uh, tips or lessons learned that you would share with? Uh, I think you might have popped out here. Oh, there we go. You're back. Oops, I'm back. <laughs> All right. Um, too, many, too many windows and switches in this uh, restream thing. Um, okay. Cool. Proper cash flow management. What's another um, kind of major uh, key or lesson that you would share with a kind of a past version of yourself? Um, I would just say, just use, I would have used mentors faster in different situations. Once I started spending more money on mentors and different masterminds and things like that, it just really accelerated the progress a lot. Like there was some, there were some situations where there was like a key hire or a key change in the business that I, sh I could have made like six months or even a year earlier. And I just didn't like hiring an operations manager or, you know, certain things like that. Um, or just like having a bookkeeper. So we have actually accurate financial statements and things like that. Those kind of things that just seem obvious in retrospect. I started hammering through those things a lot faster once I was part of a mastermind where I could just you know, get the help that I needed and I had a problem, I could just go straight to someone with a, you know, $400,000 a month agency or someone who had already solved those problems. Mm -hmm. I would have saved a lot of time, which, you know, if you're trying to grow a business, the time equals money, right? And I had a bit of a scarcity mindset in the first few um, years of the business of just, I didn't want to spend the money on the mentors because, you know, I can learn this in podcasts, I can learn this in YouTube, while that may be true, it's going to take you a lot longer to to get that information. Like the, the higher level I got on my agency, the more it was worth to pay for that just quick one piece of information that I needed at that time 
than to spend that time for hours going through some YouTube and some other free resource or even like a cheaper course or something like that. It Because that one piece of information might have been worth like 10, 20, 30, $40,000 if I just implemented it over the next coming weeks. Um, so of course it's worth to pay $5,000 or like $10,000 for a mentor to help you get that piece of information that you need, right? So that's just an equation I didn't really... Uh, I didn't really understand in the first few years that made a lot of sense once I got to a, a bit of a higher level. Okay, awesome. Any uh, specific um, mentors or, or agency masterminds that you want to give a shout out to for other agency guys? Um, yeah, there was, um, they changed the name of it. I think it's called Agency Labs now. They used to be called Seven Figure Agency, but they have a, uh, you know, a good starter program. Um, and then they had a, an inner circle mastermind, which was like a 12-month thing for people doing more than 50K a month. And that was really valuable. I'm not sure if he's still doing that. I think he might have changed it. Um, but um, that, was, that was really helpful for me. A lot of really good guys in there, high level. Nice. What was the name of it again? Um, they changed the name to Agency Labs. Yeah, I, I got my, uh, I started my agency at a, uh, at a mastermind. It was like two week uh, villa mastermind retreat type of thing in, in Bali. And that was super sick. Like really got me jumped off to, to the races. And yeah, I'm always, uh, I'm always uh, preaching that message as well. Agencies, masterminds or, or yeah, master masterminds and uh, mentors are, are the best to uh, best shortcut. There is totally agreed. Uh, and any other kind of big, um, big uh, tips, uh, takeaways that you would share to uh, to other uh, agency guys that are building up? Let's see. Agency guys who are building up. So assuming that people already have an agency. Um, mm -hmm. the, last, the last thing that I would say that would be really applicable to a lot of agency owners, because I know a lot of agency owners start out doing a lot of the things themselves and just kind of overworking and everything like that. I would say... As soon as humanly possible with your cash flow, hire some sort of operations manager. You know, that can, and operations manager is a bit of a scary term. You're like, well, I can't afford to hire an operations manager. Then, well, then call them whatever you want, mm -hmm. but you want someone who can handle the random day to day things that come up, like managing contractors or, you know, following up with someone on the graphic design team for something or, you know, client messaging those types of things, right? And it's a bit messy, like in the beginning, you're probably, maybe you have someone who's managing client messages and cleaning up those little random things that come up there, but later you're gonna split it out into a full-time account manager who's talking to clients and then full-time operations manager who's only doing things, mm -hmm. right? But in the beginning, like the most valuable person you can have is that person who's just going to do the repeatable things that just pop up every day, clean up the client messages, clean up the random, you know, following up with team members and stuff like that that needs to happen uh, because that is just mm -hmm. such a time suck. It's such a focus yeah. suck and it's such a low value thing in your business that just needs to happen to keep running. You should be focused on how do you grow? Um, you know, what, you know, who's your next hire? What's your next marketing strategy? Are you, you know, you need to hire a sales rep and scale sales team. Like all of these things are, things that you probably can't hire someone to do. Um, but, you know, all these operations things that you think are so difficult, they're really not. 
Yeah. Oh man, that rings the bell so true, dude, because I'm basically my operations manager, you know, in my business, but I'm the CEO. I should be focusing on the biz dev. Um, it's like exactly like the, the transition between like, boom, kickoff call. And then over to the account manager, there's things that slip through like, oh, he shared this, this PDF about his products, but it didn't get put in the chat. It's like overseeing the the all the accounts and making sure that like everything is just like pieced together that is a time suck for me and so that is double confirmation that operations manager boom coming soon um so i can focus on the high level you know ten thousand an hour tasks uh that, that they say you know the the biz step the long-term building up youtube assets the google traffic the building up the podcast, the strategic partnerships and all that good stuff. Totally, man. Because if you're going to hire someone to do that, you're going to have to pay a consultant, uh, probably one who knows what they're worth. And you're going to have to pay them thousands of dollars just for a one-time thing. They're not going to know your business as well as you do. You're going to have to spend a lot of time getting them up to speed on your business. You should be doing those things and, you know, pass out the menial things to someone, uh, someone you can hire. It's totally hireable. Totally. Um, for hiring, were there any um, kind of um, lessons you learned with hiring or best places that you found your best hires, like through networks or was it just like, you know, freelance platforms or what were the kind of lessons learned with hiring? Uh, I mean, the biggest thing about hiring is that it's um, so for some context, when I sold the company, it had, I think, 22 full-time employees. Uh, we peaked somewhere around like 25, 26 full-time employees. Um, and so I've hired probably over the course of the business, more than 40 different full-time employees, not including any contractors and things like that. And the biggest thing that I learned was the time that it takes to hire someone really good is way, way longer than most people think. Um, just the amount of effort. It's not, you, you don't need to go through a hundred applicants. You probably need to go through like 500 applicants to find one that's actually really good. If you really look at like the amount of people that apply, you eliminate those, you reach out to the ones who need an interview and then the ones that pass the interview and the ones that pass the final interview, you're probably going to have to go through at least 500 applicants, which takes a long time. It takes a lot of effort. It takes, you know, more than just like a week. You're probably going to take more than a month, maybe more than two months uh, depending on the hire, right? If you need a, a virtual assistant, maybe it's not worth it to go through all that. But if you need to hire like your operations manager or someone who's just like got to be a, a really good producer or something, um, you're going to have to spend a lot of time and effort to find that person. Because the sad truth is that the vast majority of people who apply for a job are just terrible employees. They're just bad employees. Uh, for whatever reason, they're not a good fit or they're just, you know, not motivated and they're just looking for any random job and they're not going to give a shit about anything. Um, and that's like probably 99% or more of the people who apply for a job. So um, I learned that the hard way by getting really frustrated, going through different interviews and things and being like, whatever, I've gone through enough applicants, like this person's the best option. So I'll just hire them when I should have just said no and just kept searching for the right person even though it took an extra few weeks or it took an extra month because that is so worth it to find the person who is really killer and they're going to be an asset for your business 
for months and months or years in the future. And you got to think about it like a good investment because it is an investment. You're investing in this person every month, their salary, you know, a, a good chunk of money, right? So think about it like an investment. Would you pick just a random, you know, I'm tired of looking at stocks today. I'll just pick the best out of the 10 stocks that I looked at today and just hope it does well, right? The difference between that and the stock that actually is going to perform well is like 100x or 1,000x uh, returns over the course of months or years. And it's the same with hiring. Mm-hmm. Yeah, those rock stars are the key for sure. And I've been saying this ever, like, like the reason we've been able to even get to, uh, you know, like the 50K plus level is because I was able to duplicate myself as an Amazon expert rock star. And so as I tell other agency guys, like the faster you can duplicate yourself, like the faster you're going to double your agency. And so with the 500 applicants thing, are you uh, mainly referring to like, um, overseas slash VA hires? It really depends on the role. So for things like graphic design and, um, you know, virtual assistants and things like that, generally those are overseas hires, but there's some things that just never seem to work out for overseas hires, like, um, communicating with clients. Like all of our accounts managers are born in Western countries or Western speaking. The, um, and just higher level managerial roles. Writers are another thing. Like if they're not native English, even if their English is really good, the writers just don't perform at the same level. Even if they're, you know, have pretty good English, it's not going to be native level. So it really depends. Um, In general, there are really good performers overseas, but for something like an agency, if you're serving a Western market and most of your clients are Western clients and, you know, they're selling on Amazon, Amazon US, then probably all of your top players are probably going to be born in a Western country and you're going to have to pay them Western salary, right? And also the Filipinos or the you know people in other um, Asian countries, for example, most of the real A players, they're not going to be happy with uh, you know typical Filipino salary. They know what they're they know what they're worth. Like the real top overseas employees, you're going to have to pay them you know, 10 times what a regular Filipino salary is, which is still an okay deal when it comes to uh, an American salary. But they know what they're worth, right? Just because they're based in Manila, if they can actually produce at a similar level as an A player from America, they're not going to settle for $10 an hour for their their pay, right? Yeah, not going to find them for the that $10 an hour. Um yeah, yeah. Well, they are there, but they're diamonds in our rough, and you got to get real lucky. And we, uh, any uh, any digital nomad knows that it's like uh, it's very hit or miss. You can get lucky, like find those rock stars that will be with you for years and years, but that's not the normal case. Um, and then a question about like employees: Is there some best practice about like so you had official employment agreements, right? Like. Currently, in my agency, it's all just contractor agreements. Is there like super big benefits to having it as an official employment uh, agreement, whether it's taxes or just like, you know, mindset for them or um, I I haven't researched that a a ton, but any advice there? 
Well, so that gets really complicated depending on where your company is registered and then where the employees are. So like my company was a Canadian company. So any employees who lived in other countries, they had to be contractors technically. They can't be Canadian employees. Um, our Canadian employees, they're all um, paid on Canadian payroll. So we pay their tax deductions and some other things associated with Canadian payroll. Um, and they had a, a separate agreement that has to be know, up to par with Canadian standards, but all of the international ones, they just went under a very basic uh, generic contractor agreement template okay. that, uh, you know, but that being said, we had a, a few countries like in the Philippines, for example, we had a lot of employees in the Philippines. We had a lot of employees in Bali and Indonesia. In Bali, I actually set up an Indonesian company and then everyone in Bali was paid as an Indonesian employee with all the Indonesian taxes and all those things. Uh, paid the benefits and everything like that. And we follow Indonesian holidays. And in the Philippines, they're all technically contractors to the Canadian company, but we would still we would still honor their local holidays. And they both Indonesia and the Philippines have something called 13th month pay, which is, you know, if they're with you for a full year or longer, then they get uh, a 13th month paid at the end mm -hmm. of the year or at different times, depending on uh, you know their religion. But um, those are kind of local customs, and we would follow those depending on what country those employees are from. So we try to treat them as much as possible like employees, like all of their friends in their country get treated. Uh, but technically, they're, they're external contractors. Okay. Is that 13th month pay? Like, basically, every year after December, they get a, a, a one-month bonus, or every additional year, they get an additional month bonus, or just one, one month bonus per year? Well, it should be prorated. So if they're with you for only six months uh, before December is when that happens in the Philippines, then they'll get, you know, half a month's pay. But if they're with you for the entire year, then they'll get a full, um, a full one month's pay. Cool. Awesome. Yeah, that makes sense. Keep them, at, you know, in incentivized to stay with you, you know, year after year after year and build a real company uh, culture. On that note, any like a, uh, tips and tricks that you would share looking back around that kind of mindset, like building that company culture and um, yeah, keeping people motivated, excited to, you know, be with, be with the company year after year and uh, yeah, keep people motivated and, and performing. Yeah. So there's a, there's a few things that we did. Um, and I, I kind of stopped doing a lot of these things towards like for the final six months or year of owning the business, when I kind of lost the motivation for it a little bit, uh, I wasn't doing as much of these, but as we're growing really quickly, these were really, really good. So we had a, a Friday games call. It was a call with the entire team every single Friday on zoom. And we would just do fun shit. Like sometimes we play Jackbox games, like the, you know, there's the fun games we can play on our phone together, or we just, we do random things like we'd all open a mirror board and we'd be drawing on the mirror board. There'd be a challenge. Like you have to draw like, uh, you know, an old woman farting or like some, some something ridiculous. Mm -hmm. And then one person would just like, or everyone would vote who the, the best drawing was and stuff like that. And it was just, it was just fun. Um, and every once in a while, like maybe once every few months, we would do fun competitions. Like one of our favorite ones is we did a, a graphic design competition. So everyone got paired up with another team member and they had to Photoshop the other person into some weird picture, some weird thing. So like some, uh, some people like Photoshopped, um, 
well, I photoshopped one of the team members face like onto the moon, like in a moon landing conspiracy photo. It's like, this is where COVID came from. And it's from, it's from Maria, our graphic designer. And uh, it was just super fun. Just everyone just being silly and everyone gets to know each other a little bit more. Um, and it does have a bit of a cost, right? It's one hour every Friday and that's your time. And that's all the team's time that's on the clock. But it definitely raised morale um, quite a bit, especially during those times when the the workload was increasing all the time, like they were growing really fast at that point and things were a little chaotic. It has helped us kind of, um, you know, all most of the remote employees just get a little bit of the sense that community and team and it, it definitely made a difference. Yeah, absolutely. And so we have a call team, team hangout, I call it every Tuesday. And so our team is half American, half, uh, Filipino um, slash VA. And so here's a big question. Um, so your team hang out on Friday. Is that in US hours slash Friday nights in Bali time? Um, we would do it on um, Friday is Bali time. So most of the time, like the Asian team only works Monday to Friday, typically. But we would be so usually we keep it open ended for if they want to work on the weekends or not. And they, you know, if they want to make extra money, then we just pay them extra for if they want to work on the weekends. But we don't require anyone to work on the weekends. And, you know, that that has upsides and downsides. So there are like days like the anyone in North America, they'll be working on Saturday in Asia time and not on Monday Asia time. And so there's a little bit less crossover that way, but we, we didn't have much problems with that because the real core team members, they're all getting on daily meetings of some kind. So like the, the more managerial people are all getting on a daily meeting with each other. Sometimes the crossover times would be really weird. Like there was one point where we had team members in Europe and Asia and um, America that all needed to be on the same call. There's only like one time that yeah. <laughs> really can work for all three time zones. Um, but, you know, all the graphic designers will get on a call with the manager, the graphic design manager every day. And it just kind of keeps everyone aligned with the, you know, the real core announcements and on the same page that way. So there's a little bit less chaos with um, going through task management systems and stuff like that. And so for that time, so, you know, same thing with us. We have actually one, one European employee, our, our graphic designer, Karina. And so our team meetings are 10 p.m., Bangkok time, which is 9 a.m. Utah time. Sorry, Utah team. Uh, and it's like afternoon in Europe. So Friday team hang hangouts, evening Friday night, Bali time, or morning Friday? Uh, morning Friday in Bali time. So it's going to overlap okay. with people like on in Vancouver time zone. They're in the night time. Okay. So they're doing the night shift. Okay. Because that was kind of my next thing. And so I, people ask me this all the time. And so like Monday, Thursday, 10 PM to 1 AM is my calendar for, for calls. Like any client meetings, I take like pretty much half of the sales calls, uh, still for my agency. And so, but for me, I tell people that's, that's actually my normal work hours. Cause my whole life I've been a night owl, even when I was just doing my own FBA store, like my hustle hours when I'm in my flow is the nighttime grind till like 2, 3 a.m. I've just always been that way. Um, 
Is that the case for you or have you always done your meetings with the U.S. team in your early mornings and their nighttime? Yeah, I'm the opposite of you. So I always do it in the mornings. Like my first calls always start at 6 a.m. and then are are done by about 9 a.m. So I just wake up, hammer out any calls that need to be done. And then the rest of the day is for um, for whatever I need. Um, And we scaled till I think about 60 or 70 K a month with only time slots from 6 a.m. onwards, Bali time. So that's, you know, 6 p.m. EST, which means that anyone in the New York time zone is going to have to get on like around dinner time with us. Mm. And that was fine for us up to like 60, 70 K a month. And then we got a, another closer who is based in American time zone and they could kind of hammer out the rest of the hours. And that's when it scaled to over a hundred. Okay. Cool. Yeah, I guess that, that kind of makes sense. After people are off work anyway, it's like if they want to book call, they're going to they're gonna make it work. And so, yeah, our, our only time slots are like, uh, yeah, 8 a.m. Pacific to like 11 Pacific. So kind of in the morning, but haven't really had any any complaints. Um, actually, only, only like a few, like, oh, those times don't work for me. And in that case, Ryan takes the call and he just takes it in afternoon Utah time. Um, but yeah, kind of the next big step for me is, um, so me and Ryan, who's the, kind of the, the other version of myself, and he's running a team of three uh, guys in our, our Utah office, um, is uh, bring on another closer, boom, they handle that. And then so my kind of won't be taking any like client calls um, in the evening um, that won't be necessary. So kind of my, my bandwidth will be more free towards, uh, yeah, more biz dev uh, and kind of higher level stuff. So yeah, that's kind of the, the next level. But I, I think the real big thing is finding another version of Ryan, that another kind of version of myself and easier said than done that can kind of, um, yeah, duplicate yourself again to, to duplicate a company. I think that's huge. Um, well, but on that note, kind of I think the, is, the more yeah, you grow, like where you're at at like around 50K a month, is time to start shifting away from duplicating yourself and time to start shifting towards filling in your weaknesses so you can focus on your strengths. Um, because if you just if you just keep duplicating yourself, if you're doing like a lot of different things, that just it becomes harder and harder. Um, it's much better to just completely get more things off your plate. And generally, that's the things that you like doing the least. Um, usually the things that you enjoy doing more, you're actually better at because, you know, for me, that's sales and marketing. And so, you know, between 50 and 100K, a lot of what helped me get there was passing off a lot of the stuff that I didn't enjoy doing. So I had more time to focus on the things that I was better at and I could make a bigger impact um, in the company. What were those things for you? Uh, for me, like any financial stuff, uh, financial stuff and definitely like anything operational. So, you know, after, yeah, I mean, at 20, at only 20 K a month, we hired our first person who was, I guess, a mini operations manager. But after 50, there was someone who really took like any day-to-day operations off the hands. Um, that was huge. And then I pretty much focused almost all of my time on one learning from different mentors and then implementing that when it comes to growing the company like sales marketing um, systems like getting better systems in place for hiring hr onboarding team members onboarding clients like just just getting everything in a place where it can scale um, 
was something that you, you can't really just tell one of your employees to go do that unless they're just like someone capable of building their own business anyways, you know? Yeah, right. Yeah, the business building stuff and bringing the, the systems. So it's systems, you know, internal systems. Then it's like the outside, like business. And that's been like what I've been trying to, to double our appointments. And so Google SEO has been um, over this past six to 12 months. Um, we've, we've always been pretty big on Upwork, um, but you like every freaking platform, every platform gets more competitive Amazon, YouTube, TikTok, everything, um, Facebook. And so I'm trying to crack the next big lead gen thing. And I think it's going to be some paid funnel, you know, talking to other you know agencies that have just gone from 100K to 700K a month because they've got this one Instagram ad that they were able to scale. Did you test kind of paid ads or ever had success with that? Yeah, we did a, a decent amount of testing with paid ads and we never had a whole lot of success with it. Um, paid ads are a little bit difficult to crack in the Amazon space, specifically because Amazon sellers are very difficult to target even with something very specific like YouTube ads, if you just go and just input all of the most popular YouTube videos around Amazon FBA, 99% of those people watching those videos are brand new Amazon sellers or people yeah, who have not watched the first dreamers. product. That's the whole thing. Yeah, that's the yeah. whole thing. That yeah, that's 99% so like, of YouTube. Yeah. Targeting actual Amazon sellers is very difficult. It's, it's not something that you can really do through Facebook and YouTube ads, unless you have an ad that just crushes so much that even though it shows the 99% people who are not Amazon sellers, that 1% is just going to convert really well. And I never managed to crack that. Um, I think intent based marketing is just a lot easier. Um, so like in the beginning, that was like Facebook groups and just making good uh, relationships with Facebook group owners, but then that evolved into the SEO, like people searching very specific search terms that qualifies them as an Amazon seller. Like, um, you know, one of our biggest services was Amazon product photography, which you're probably not going to search for on Google until you're at the stage of like, I'm about to sell my Amazon product. I need some photos. You know, people don't just randomly look up that. So that's like getting people a little bit later in the stage, uh, specifically for the Amazon seller niche. I know lots of other guys in other niches who do really well with paid ads, but I just found we, we never had great success with targeting paid ads to like cold uh, Amazon seller leads. Yeah. Yeah. Most people are product research dreamers. Um, that's the vast majority of people that are, um, yeah. So that, yeah. Target people who already have a, a, a product. And so like the recent YouTube ad, like we had a YouTube, the lead gen slash YouTube ads agency. Um, all right. We're advertising this listing optimization checklist. So it's like, well, they better have already have a fucking listing. So, but that's still early days or not even really lots of data coming in, but yeah, that's a, that's another one. test. Um, yeah. Something specific that would qualify them. Yeah. Like listing optimization checklist or so filter out people who don't have a, a brand yet, don't have a product yet, but also I'm starting to think like maybe um, it doesn't hurt to collect those email addresses. Like maybe with those those product research streamers, because some maybe in the next six months, maybe they will have a product that they need to launch. They need PPC management. So, um, 
Yeah. I mean, there's some value to it. It's just that when you're paying for the ads, then it's like, what is the actual value of each one of those email addresses? Right. Because then, mm-hmm. then it's an actual cost to it. Uh, because we did get quite a few people who, that when they finally message us, they let us know that they've been following us for multiple years. Um, and then they're finally ready to launch their first product. Like that, we had that happen quite a lot of times. So it, it definitely is value to it. But the thing about the paid ads is like, you, you need to know an exact value to it. It's like that, that email is worth like $2 or whatever, or else it's not worth actually spending the money, right? Yeah, yeah, they, they're recommending. So like, it's, a, it's basically a, a low ticket. Um, we've all seen these low ticket uh, front end offers. So it's like a $27 uh, checklist or, you know, mini guide or mini workshop or something. So a, a self-paying funnel or whatever that builds your email list or whatever. But anyway, cool. Yeah, that, that's good to know. And so, so Google SEO, as, as I you know, asked you like two or three years ago, was your guys bread and butter? Makes total sense. That's where the hottest leads are. They're searching out exactly what they need. And so, yeah, that's why I kind of content, like catch people like exactly where where they are in the funnel. Um, okay, awesome. Wow, already up to almost 50 minutes here. P-Smith, shout out, graduated money. I see you hustling, P-Smith. That's my, that's my good high school buddy, always tuning in. Um, oh, I see you, 2 a.m., hustling in the... Uh, on the west coast cool any other kind of tips tricks uh, words of wisdom um that we didn't cover that that are significant that you would share for people uh on this journey um i mean i would just say that like an agency it is it is a tough way to make a living for sure but it is no better way in my opinion to grow a company that can build some really good wealth in a very short amount of time with a very low amount of capital investment needed, if anything. I mean, when I started the agency, I really didn't have any money. I was just, you know, hustling. All my money was just out on the table, just getting things done and in other side hustles and things like that. I didn't have to go take out a loan. I just hustled it from the ground up by myself. And then it just naturally could reinvest that into new employees and softwares and you know coaching programs and things like that. So um I, I think it's uh, you know less flashy and awesome than all these SaaS companies and you know the really flashy things that people want to do, but it is a tried and true way that I think is really the easiest way to build wealth, especially if it's your first business. It is probably the most stable income that you can build for yourself uh, with the shortest amount of investment. Awesome, 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 awesome. I had very similar feelings um you know e-commerce is is great it can be really passive but um you know you, you got to have that million dollar idea and but agency like you can just be tried and true just delivering solid services um especially if something you, that you already have expertise in just get a core group of uh guys and girls around you you know just deliver solid and uh get good reviews and, and they'll keep coming in. Oh, absolutely. And just to, to answer, I think this, uh, Nathan Clark had a question that I think is related to that. If you had 20 K, would you do a physical oh, yeah. product that primarily sells on Amazon or niche digital marketing agency? And, uh, I think you probably know the answer to that already based on my last answer here, but, uh, I would definitely choose a digital marketing agency because in my experience, you know, about 60 years in the Amazon space, 
the people who have really been successful on Amazon that I've seen, they were starting off with 50 or 100K, um, you know, and there's, you know, there's plenty of people I also seen that were successful with, you know, 10, 20K, but at a much lower rate than the guys who really went in there with a, a big amount of money. Some of them got it from Kickstarter. Some of them got investors. Some of them just had the money from previous business or something like that. But usually they were starting off with 50, 100K in some kind of really unique product or something that would take a lot of money to start, like, you know, big furniture or things like that. Um, so at, at 20K, I would definitely, I would probably start a digital marketing agency, build that up, and then maybe have more cash flow you want to uh, really properly launch like an epic new product or something like that. Yeah. I tell the people, this uh, all the time and just made a little TikTok video about this exact question. Like 20K is like what you need to launch one private label product on Amazon FBA these days. Like you're going to need a big PPC budget, like $100 a day, you know, for the first three to six months. So that's like 10K in Amazon ads. You're going to want to have a crazy sick video and product photography. So like bundle that together as like 5K inventory. 5k 10k so like like I, I talk we i talk about this all day you're you're gonna need at least bare minimum 10k for one product probably if you're gonna want to go hard 20k um but at the, at the end of the day e-commerce comes down to a good idea why are you different than all of the dozens of other similar things you know so that's why i tell people like it, it's more of like a, a if you have a great idea, like do a Kickstarter thing, because you're not just going to launch any same, same phone case tripod thing these days. <laughs> That's what I did. That's why I started in 2015. But phone cases and, and, and selfie stick tripods, it worked back then. But like every platform, it gets more competitive. So what does that mean? You got to be better. You got to stand out. Same thing with TikTok, YouTube, podcast. There's more and more and more. You just got to be better. You got to stand out. You got to be smarter and be, be more unique and more, more creative. So the same thing with the e-commerce game. Your success, you're just going to have a have to have a better product idea. Doesn't mean it can't be done. My mom still makes $1,000 a month passive income because she had this idea of a, a, a headrest on the, on the plane that straps into your uh, your uh, your forehead. And so you're on the plane. You're not bobbing up and down. So like in any little product idea, it's easier than ever to launch it and get it to the mass mass market that's what amazon is it's just half of what where people shop online on, on amazon but um yeah you, you can't just launch any any same same thing like like any company success comes from a good idea right but that's just uh, kind of obvious right um but with an agency you don't um yeah it doesn't doesn't take that that, that genius steve jobs idea just um just follow the the tried and true methods and uh you know be likable and uh make uh make um deliver good results to your clients uh where they want to go tell their friends and say hey this, these guys are, are great they did a good job yeah it's a good old-fashioned hustle you're not going to find yourself 50k in debt from starting an agency yeah i mean I, of course yeah, like now, like, but... yeah much much lower yeah <laughs> for sure start off you know I have other videos and that's if, if you guys already watched this far, I actually started a whole separate channel, Riley Bennett Marketing, where I'm talking about my agency building journey, um, specifically like a lot of Upwork because actually like my first three years Upwork was like the foundation of it. And lots of people have been asking me on Instagram about Upwork. So I'm doing more like workshops, talks about all the agency stuff. So link in the description, go 
go follow Riley Bennett uh, marketing new YouTube channel. Um, and Danny Carlson is on Instagram. You saw his Instagram over there. If you want to, you know, uh, follow him um, in Bali, living the good life, going to be traveling out to Turkey. Um, shout out P Smith for the super chat, bro. You a G still got to make a trip out here, bro. Um, so yeah, see all you guys on, on Instagram and in the comments and, uh, Danny, that was awesome. I appreciate all the tips. Thanks for having me on. Pleasure to chat, man.